It would help if I turn my mic on. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the word of Almighty God. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave that region. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Tombstones can be interesting things to look at. Maybe in visiting the tombstone or the grave of a loved one, you see different markings on there. Alistair Begg says he has heard of one for Stingy Jimmy Wyatt. He says, Stingy Jimmy Wyatt died one morning at 10 and saved a dinner by it. There's a lot on tombstones. If you see some of the gravestones of unbelievers, there are some that will say, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Hopeless, cynicism. A beloved brother that I know, his wife died. On her tombstone was written, Awaiting the Trumpet. I thought that was really good. John Calvin was buried in an unmarked grave because he didn't want people coming to his grave as much of the medieval church did and using that as a way to be really completely confused about the true gospel and using it in a way of worship or something. Well, here we find Jesus among the tombs, a man who is demon-possessed living in a graveyard, kids. We find Jesus as well healing the sick and loving sinners who are weary. And we are reminded today of his authority and power. As Alistair Begg says, there is as much of a chance of people being converted by my mouth as a person will come out of that grave. Only God can do that. 
and he does do it by his word, by his spirit, and we see that today with the authority of Christ. First, we want to look at Jesus' authority over sickness. The theme in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew is all about the power of Christ. The reason people on Palm Sunday, next Sunday in the church calendar, said Hosanna to the son of David is because of what they see happening in these chapters. Jesus, who speaks the Sermon on the Mount and has all authority, now demonstrates that authority through his healings. Jesus himself is saying, this is the Sermon on the Mount come to life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now Jesus is filling them, comforting them, encouraging them with his love, his power, and his compassion. He has already healed the leper, the centurion's servant, and now the text tells us in Matthew 8, he's at the house of Peter and his mother-in-law. Peter was married, that tells us, so there's no sense that the Bible says a pastor or anyone should live a celibate life by direct decree of God. If someone's called to singleness, that's great, but Peter certainly wasn't single. His mother-in-law is sick, not just kids with a fever that you might have and you think, well, maybe I can get out of school if I have this fever long enough this morning. But a fever that might have been malarial. Dr. Luke, the physician in his gospel, says it was a high fever. The kind of fever that someone could die from. And despite the Jewish writings of the day that would say, don't touch someone, lest you maybe get that or lest you become infected with that, Jesus in amazing compassion touches her, much like he touched the leper, showing his tender care for sinners and for sufferers. And immediately the fever leaves her. It's not the kind of thing that she starts to somehow get a little better, but right away the text tells us She does what God calls her to do, and us as well, to love and to serve. She immediately begins to serve Jesus. By the word of his power, she's healed. As are, the text tells us, many who come who are sick. No matter how incurable or terminal or hopeless their sickness is and their condition is, Matthew tells us Jesus does this in compassion and by his authority as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews, as the one who fulfills, we see here, Isaiah 53. Do you notice how verse 17 is a fulfillment here in what Jesus does of what Martin Luther called the fifth gospel? Isaiah 53. Have you read that chapter recently? especially this time of year, go back and read how this passage, like all the scriptures, is pointing to Christ, but in particular, the suffering servant. And the Bible tells us here, when Jesus heals, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, Isaiah says. In what sense is that true, do you think? How does Jesus take the infirmities and diseases upon himself and off the shoulders of his people. How does that work? 
Not in the sense that when he healed someone, he got the sickness, but by means of his sympathy and compassion, entering as the man of sorrows into the sorrows of those he came to save. And the kids are learning this in catechism. The entire life of Christ is one of suffering. Not just on the cross, but in our place throughout his life. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He takes our suffering on himself in his life and in his death. He becomes what we are by nature, that we might become what he is by grace. He takes the illnesses and bears the diseases of his people. There's a lot of things that can be misunderstood by this text. How do we rebuke and heal someone with a fever? The answer is we don't. (laughs) This is the Son of God. He comes to demonstrate his power and who he is. So we are not told to kind of mimic this. On the other extreme, some people say, well, miracles never happen. This is a miracle. This is a direct act of God as he's working to demonstrate his power. Does Jesus still heal people today? There are snake oil salesmen. There are people that will say they are healers and they're not. They are really doing the work of the devil, not the work of God. This is something only God can do. So don't buy into, and I know you're wise, the lies of those who say, well, touch the TV and you can kind of experience healing. But does Jesus still heal people today? The answer to that is yes. Through means, above means, sometimes against means. Do we pray for this? Yes. We pray for one another. Here is Peter's mother-in-law. So a reminder for us to pray for our nearest and dearest who are sick. My mother-in-law is here today visiting. Praying for one another as a church family. For those as Elder Drake just prayed today. Those that might be suffering sleeplessness or affliction physically and mentally and emotionally in all sorts of ways. Yes, we pray, God heal them. The Bible doesn't say, forget about a doctor. God sometimes uses means. Paul told Timothy, not have faith and be well, but take some wine for your stomach to make it better. God uses means. Sometimes he heals without those means. James 5.14 comes to mind. If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Have you thought of that verse? Most likely, James is speaking here of someone who's too weak to get out of bed. Call upon the elders. Too weak to come to worship. The person who is sick is to ask for this. The oil is not medicinal. There's not any healing property in the act. It's not done instead of a doctor. It acknowledges Christ, our chief physician. The oil is symbolic. 
a sign of our dependence on God, one of whose names is the Lord our healer. The emphasis is on the object of our faith, Christ, not faith healing. We think about this as many of us struggle with different illnesses, and we are reminded that God himself sometimes chooses to heal, sometimes he doesn't. We can never make our health the test of God's love for us. Through trials and testings, he sanctifies us. As we pray, God, heal my loved one, yet not my will, but your will. Knowing that one day God will heal all our diseases, Psalm 103. One day there will be no more mourning or crying or death. Our prayers for healing will be answered, ultimately on the day of Christ's return or when God calls us to be with the Lord. Until then, we're in a fallen world. Curse, pain, suffering, sickness, and, as we see secondly, the work of Satan who seeks to devour. Jesus has authority over sickness. Now we see Jesus has authority over Satan, demons, and the realm of evil. You see in the text in Matthew 8 that Jesus also is casting out demons. And then in particular, we jump ahead to the episode here that maybe you've heard or read or been wondering about or maybe it's the first time you're looking at this passage. Here is Jesus in the realm of the Gadarenes. This is Gentile territory. There are steep cliffs in this area and it's not just random that he goes there. But he is going there as a light to the Gentiles. His gospel goes to the nations. It's international. And immediately he is met by divine appointment by two, Matthew tells us, men who are possessed by demons. The demons seek him out. There are two extremes, as C.S. Lewis says, to avoid when we talk about this realm of demonic activity. The first is to be over-fascinated by it, to think there's a demon under every rock. There's a lot of books and movies that go that direction. Or to say, well, I didn't sin here. It was the demon of gossip. That's what happened. Or the demon of lust. No, the devil didn't make me do it. Whenever I sin, it's an inside job. It's my sin. That's one extreme. The other extreme to avoid is to dismiss demonic activity as kind of Star Trek type stuff or science fiction. We're all really good. There's no evil. More education, that'll solve the problem. It'll, everything will be fine. Satan is fine, by the way, with secularists and magicians. The Bible teaches us demons are real spiritual beings. We have kids. This is an opportunity for parents to talk in age-appropriate ways about these things. Demons are fallen angels. They joined Satan when he fell from heaven. They were cast out of heaven. They await final judgment. They were created at one time. They don't reproduce. They are not everywhere present. They are not all-knowing, but they have vast knowledge. 
They serve Satan. They are behind the world's complex system of evil. They are not superstitious fairy tales. They hate God. They hate everything that God does. They hate God's people. They want to destroy Christ and his church. The Bible says in the Old Testament, there is one example that we have of demon possession. Saul. Doesn't mean that there weren't others, but that's the one we have. After the Gospels, we read about this in Acts 16. But in the Gospels, it is intense. It is Satan and all of his battalion coming down in force as the Son of God incarnate is doing his ministry. It is Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent, waging war against God, his son, and his church. The champions, Goliath and David, that was a picture of Christ and Satan. It's not that Satan is kind of dueling it out with God. That's not the point. Christ is sovereign over Satan. Luther tells us the devil is God's devil. He only can do what God allows him to do. What we have here are two men demon-possessed. This is not that they have a fever. This is not mental illness. This is not someone who's gone insane. This is a supernatural phenomenon. A living spiritual being, a fallen angel kicked out of heaven in rebellion with Satan who works for Satan to stop God's purposes and enters into these men, literally taking over their body and their mind. These are personal, rational spirits. They talk, they scream. It's not a physical disease, but there are physical ailments. We'll see that associated with it. These men are in bondage to the demons. Matthew says they live among the tombs. Mark and Luke bring this out as well. They're isolated. The town knows about them. They would come onto the road and seek to inflict and to kill, so people would avoid the road where these demons would come. Luke tells us they were naked, perverse, shameless, They have a strength that is beyond human comprehension. They could not be tied down with chains. They could not be shackled. They cry out violently. They're self-destructive. They're howling day and night, horrifying, violent, and the image of God is all but gone in them. That's what Satan wants to do, to rub out the image of God in man. He is about destruction and death. This is a foretaste of hell. One man says there has hardly been any picture in the Bible that is a picture of more demonic power and activity condensed in one man than this. These two demon-possessed men cry at the top of their voice, Verse 29, Matthew 8. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know that Jesus is there. 
Not because of his physical appearance. Remember Isaiah 53? There's nothing about his outward appearance that would draw us to him. Meaning, he has no outward beauty that would attract you to him, Isaiah 53. But he is the living God, truly God, truly man. He's dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The demons knew this was Jesus. They understand exactly who Jesus is. They have good theology, outwardly. James 2 tells us the demons have knowledge of God. They believe that he is the Son of God. But they hate him. They don't trust him. They don't love him. They don't follow him. James 2 is a warning to us as well, loved ones, that it's possible to profess faith but not truly possess faith. True saving faith is knowledge, assent, and trust in Christ, who he is and what he has done. It's not knowledge alone, but knowledge and trust and love that distinguishes someone who's a believer from an unbeliever. A reminder to us, does our knowledge of the Bible make us love Jesus more and hate sin more? Does our knowledge of the Bible, by the Holy Spirit changing us, help us to love our spouse more? Changing our hearts and our tongues follow. There's a connection between the tongue and the heart. The tongue speaks out of the abundance of the heart. Does our knowledge of Christ affect us there by the Spirit? We don't want to leave these truths just kind of bouncing in our head. Knowledge by itself can puff up. We want to ask God, help me embrace the truth of the gospel in my heart. By your Spirit to love your law. We can't do this unless God opens our, our blind eyes. Jesus has authority over Sickness over demons and over our blind eyes by his spirit. Jesus says to this man in response, what is your name? The other gospel writers bring this out. Do you know what the demon-possessed men say? Legion. A Roman legion is up to 6,000 soldiers. Not literally that there are 6,000 demons in this man but that there is an army. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. It's as if Jesus is at Mordor, to use an illustration. The battalion of evil. This man is possessed by a host of demons, and he doesn't know his name. Legion is not the man's name. Legion are the demons speaking through the man. Kind of like the Lord of the Rings when the lieutenant of the tower of Barad-dur, whose name was remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it. And he only said, I am the mouth of Sauron. I don't know my name. I'm a man possessed by a host of demons, he's saying. Jesus, the demons reply, have you come before the time? Are you here to throw us into the abyss? The abyss is final judgment. The eternal fire of hell prepared for the devil and his demons. They're crying out, Luke tells us in Luke 8, with a loud voice. 
wait a minute, they're saying. Jesus, we're not supposed to go to hell until your second coming. They, they know these things in some hard-to-understand way. You're not going to throw us there now, before the time, to be tormented forever. One day that will happen. The day of judgment. The demons are saying, don't bring it forward now. Do something else with us. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't cast them into hell. He sends them to the pigs. He gives them permission, Luke 8. He is sovereign over everything. And what we have here is the original Bay of Pigs, Alistair Begg says. We don't know why pigs. This is a big business, though. Mark tells us there are 2,000 of them. God sends them into the pigs, and the picture is graphic. They are frantic. They are charging over the cliff, one after another. And the pigs drown. The demons don't drown. They can't drown. But the point is clear. The king has come. This is the greatest show of power over the forces of hell to this point in the Bible that God has. It's a direct miracle. It's immediate. It's a sneak preview of what is to come on the day of Christ's return. It's a sign that the kingdom of heaven was dawning. It's a reminder that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And yet here we are today, still awaiting that final return of Jesus. In his death and resurrection, Christ has bound Satan. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities, Colossians 2. The nations are no longer deceived as they once were. But Satan is still your adversary. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible says, flee temptation. We pray, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, you withstood the temptation for me. You overcame Satan. You defeated him. Preserve me that in you, Lord Jesus, I will be delivered from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation. Satan has been bound. Is demon possession still possible today? Yes, it is. O. Palmer Robertson, a Reformed pastor, speaks of coming to Africa and a man possessed of spirits with extraordinary strength comes to him without knowing him and says, what are you doing here, man of God? He tries to intimidate him. He takes a steel bar. He places it in his teeth. He bends it with his hands. He has extraordinary strength. He's aware of a man of God in his presence. Yeah, these things do happen. Demons act much like they do in this passage, trying to erase the identity of the person, driving them to self-destruction. Missionaries report this. Not just in other lands, but in America. But it would be a mistake to think this is only how Satan acts. 
Not all demon possession and demonization in the work of Satan is like this. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He works through false doctrine, getting people to deny the trustworthiness of the authority of the word of God. The town run by Satan, one man said, is a town where everything is tidy and neat and clean and where the churches are filled to the brim where Christ and the gospel is not preached. That's one spot he works. He works as well through evil governments, Pharaoh, Herod, Hitler, and look around today. Look at what's happening in the Minnesota legislature right now. When the restraints on evil are removed, Satan and his minions are behind this evil that is being done. Sinclair Ferguson said this at Ligonier just a few days ago. It is the apex of creation that God made man and woman. Marriage and family, God made them. It shouldn't surprise us, he says, that that is where the enemy attacks. The devil, with all his might and his demons, lies in wait like a murderer to ruin the church. Apart from God's grace, this is a picture of what we would be. James says someone can degenerate themselves to this evil without being possessed by a demon, James 1. The destruction of the image of God in man. James 3 speaks of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as demonic. Pornography is demonic. The occult, this is evil. This is not just kind of neutral stuff. We must not soft pedal this. It is sin. It is against God's law. It is what we would be apart from God's grace. And if what we want or what we have is not God and the gospel, then we are in bondage to sin. Apart from Jesus, we are haters of God, self-destructive, powerless to save ourselves. John says the unconverted are the children of the devil. The world lies in the lap of the evil one. Apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. The God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. If you are under the grip of evil or know someone who is gripped by Satan, oppressed by Satan, today, hear this, the voice of Jesus silenced these demons. And Jesus says to you today, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. His ministry is to heal. It's a glimpse of the day to come, what's happening here in Matthew 8. Look at the change Jesus brings to this man. Both of them. They were naked, now they're clothed. They're covered by Christ. They're washed in his blood. They're given his righteousness. They were roaming wildly. Now they're sitting at Jesus' feet as disciples. They were gashing themselves Jesus has given them a new nature, a new heart, a new mind, a new will, a heart set free, the power of the gospel. Look at what God can do. Look at what God continues to do. 
Jesus undoes Satan's work. He restores the image of God in these men. He brings liberty to those oppressed, Isaiah 61. Believer, you are no longer enslaved to Satan. The Spirit of God has freed you from bondage and unbelief and brought you to Christ by faith. The miracle of regeneration, the supernatural act of God, Look at what Christ did and what he does. Christ has bound the strong man. He has plundered Satan's house. He says, these Emmaus Road beloved brothers and sisters are mine. He paid the debt of your sin. He loves you. Your identity is not in your sin. You are not a gossiping Christian. You are not an angry Christian. Yes, you may still struggle with gossip and anger, but Christ has claimed you. You are his. You don't have to live like a slave. You can sit like this man sits at his feet. You're a new creation in Jesus. As you struggle with sin, remember, you are united to Christ, not just a follower of him. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. You are loved by God. And believer, you don't need to be afraid of demons. As a believer, you cannot be indwelt by a demon. It's impossible. The spirit of God lives in you. You've been delivered from darkness. You've been brought into light. How did the people that day respond. Jesus heals these men. Word gets back. The owners of the pigs find out. Can you imagine? They're told, yeah, Jesus cast demons. All 2,000 of your pigs are dead. Can you imagine? How would the crowd and the people respond? Do you see what the text tells us? They pled with Jesus to leave. Get out of here. Pigs are big business. They preferred pigs to people. We're mad these pigs died. We've lost money. If he stays around, what might happen next? They're afraid. They're mad. You see that all through the Gospels. When someone's in the presence of God and they don't trust in him, They want nothing to do with him. Do you see what is not said here? The people didn't give thanks to Jesus for sending the demons out of these men who terrorized the town. Nothing of that. They didn't rejoice at the word of the gospel, the healing and authority of Christ. They would rather be terrified by Satan than comforted by God. Much the same happened in Acts 16 when Paul cast out that spirit of divination from the girl and they lost all their money from her fortune telling. They preferred earthly satisfaction to eternal joy in Christ. It's an x-ray of hard hearts of those who reject Christ. They beg him to leave and the most frightening thing of all here is he does leave. 
The warning came to the church at Ephesus. Repent. If not, I will remove the lampstand from your midst. How does the man respond? He's healed, and he asks to go with Jesus. And one person brings us out. In this text, three requests are made of Jesus. The demons, don't throw us into the abyss, and Jesus doesn't. He sends them to the pigs. The people, Jesus, depart, and he leaves. The man, Jesus, I want to go with you. No. Jesus says, no, you need to stay. You are a missionary. Return to your home. He used to live in this town before the demons possessed him. He wasn't always in the tombs. He's a changed man. His change will be obvious to all. Go and proclaim the gospel. Go and tell of what I have done, who Jesus is. Beloved, when is the last time you and I told someone who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross, in his life, in his resurrection. I encourage all of us this week to pray, God, give me the opportunity in my home, in my neighborhood, in my family, at the grocery store, wherever, to tell someone of the good news of the gospel of Christ's love for sinners. Emmaus Road, arise and put your armor on. Amen. Let's stand and sing that hymn together on pages 8 and 9.